If you have a Bible, please open to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, if you like, you can pull a Bible out of the bench there in front. You might even find one on your phone, but Philippians chapter 2 today. The message is entitled, Choosing Joy. This is part 2. No matter what is going on in your life, you can choose joy. If you have the sermon notes there, you can see that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. When you become a Christian, God's Spirit lives inside of you, and one of the fruits that He brings is joy. Joy is dependent upon Christ. It's not dependent upon your circumstances. And joy is your choice. And this is what we learn from the Apostle Paul in this chapter. When you choose joy, three things happen. First of all, our God receives glory. When you choose joy, the Lord is honored before others. Secondly, we receive strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah said. Walking in the Spirit, it's like getting your second wind. You get more done when you walk with God than when you are out of fellowship with God. Why? Because sin and guilt, it, it runs you down. David said, it sapped my energy right out of me. You can't think straight when you're living in sin. Thirdly, unbelievers are drawn to Christ when they see us with joy. When people see Christians with the joy of the Lord, it creates a hunger, a desire to have what we have. How many people, think about this, how many people would want to become a Christian if they were a Christian just like you? Do you show them a Christ who is alive or dead? Do you show them a Christ who is powerful or weak? The secret of joy is found in having the mind of Christ, verse 5. Uh, that means to think and to act and to live like Christ. Would you please stand with me now as we continue on in the passage? The mind of Christ is, is a mind of humility. It's a mind of an attitude of putting others first, both at home, at work, and at church. And now we see the joy that Paul has even while in prison. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, the children of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all, for the same cause also, do ye joy and rejoice with me. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the instruction we have on how to have your joy in our lives and before others. If there be one that knows not Christ, God, may you touch them, draw them, convict them, and may they receive salvation. For those who have lost their joy, Today, restore to them the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have a quote there in the notes I'd like you to take a look at by Dr. Kenneth Kingston. He was an MIT professor. If you live in a society where you believe the public institutions like government are deeply flawed and not easily improved, that leaves the pursuit of individual happiness as the main goal to your energies from the mind of an unsaved man. Today, many are chasing the fantasy of personal happiness apart from a growing spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ only to become, well, to become disillusioned by the dissatisfaction they experience. This deep dissatisfaction leads to a loss of joy. It leads to an overall attitude of complaining. Enter the Apostle Paul. And so if you see with Look with me on page two of your notes uh, by way of quick review here. How to choose joy in your life. And number one, Paul says, choose to obey God's word. I mean, it's a choice. You either obey or you disobey. Wherefore, uh, my beloved Philippians, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. I was with you, you obeyed. Now I'm gone. I want you to obey more. Jesus said, blessed are they that hear the Word of God, and keep it. I shared with you a poll last week who the happiest people alive are, the people with the greatest degree of joy, the greatest degree of satisfaction, of contentment in life are people of faith. Survey after survey, year after year, not just any faith, but the Christian faith, people who worship weekly, people who participate in their local church have greater joy than others. Number two, choose to walk close to God. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is God which worketh in you, both to do and to will of his good pleasure. Notice he said, work out your salvation. He did not say work for your salvation. You cannot get to heaven by doing good works, sacraments, baptism. Uh, you can't get to heaven by joining a church or getting baptized. That doesn't wash away your sins. So what does it mean to, to work out your salvation rather than work for your salvation? Well, the word uh, was used uh, in, in Greek literature, uh, a Roman, a Roman historian Strabo used it to describe the, the Romans in Spain working in the silver mines. And what they did is, you see, God deposited the silver in the mountains, uh, but the men had to dig the tunnels. They had to mine out the silver to get it out. It took a lot of hard work to get it out. God has deposited his salvation in your hearts once you were born again. It is our responsibility to mine out of our life that which God has put into us. And so your words, your actions, your attitudes, it takes work to bring out, work out your salvation. And so Paul uses the, the terms of I'm pressing for, I'm disciplined, I keep my body under subjection. He says we don't work for salvation, but once we become Christians, we are to work hard. We're to work hard. And so he talks about a, a soldier who fights hard. He talks about a runner who runs hard in a marathon race. He talks about a boxer who, who boxes hard. And so we, we are to work once we become Christians. 
give maximum effort. Verse 13, but it's God's power that's in us. God lives inside of us. God places desires in our hearts uh, to do what he wants us to do. Did you ever get an impulse, I mean, to do something good? An impulse to do something good. Maybe it's to, to give someone a compliment. Maybe it's to uh, lend a helping hand. Maybe it's to volunteer to serve. Maybe it's to give an offering. We had a big offering coming up the end of, uh, of July, and you say, you know, where does that impulse come from? It comes from God. God that's working in you. That's a pretty amazing thought, that God is inside of me, and these impulses to do good are from God. We compared last week the quietist and the pietist. The quietist says, do nothing. The pietist says, do everything. God says, you do everything, and I'll do everything, and together you'll become Christ-like, and you'll have great joy. Of all the people on the earth, we are uniquely blessed that the God of heaven is in us and working on us. He works in us, we work out our salvation. God works in us some more, and we work out our salvation. How to choose joy in your life. Uh, number three is choose to stop complaining. Verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now, what are the typical things that people complain about? What comes to your mind? One well, of your notes, life's hardships. Things that cause us discomfort and worry and pain. People that disagree with us. Uh, that, that's uh, something to complain about. How, about. how about when we feel that our rights are violated? Uh, most people tend to complain about trivial things. Don't we? About other drivers? They drive too fast. No, no, no. They drive too slow. Uh, they're cutting in and out in front of us. And when we do that, then it's just because we're in a hurry. We need to get there. Uh, what irritates you? Is it, is it the long lines? Is it the short lines? Is it any line having one person in front of you that bother you? Crying babies. You ever have a crying baby in church? I mean, 300 people can hear it, but the mom can't? <laughs> Do you know that in our country every year, 1,000 infants, 1,000 infants will be injured or killed because of shaken baby syndrome? And the number one trigger is a crying baby. Some complain that their food is too cold, forgetting that 9 million people will die this year from starvation and malnutrition. Many complain about a midlife crisis, but forget that there are some parts of the world, because of disease, because of war, men die young, sparing them the stress of a 50th birthday party. We complain how many Americans complain about their homes? They want a, a, a new this or a new that. And yet millions around the world, they live on pavements. They live in shanty towns. They live in slums in Africa, South America, and India. You might have a problem of legitimate concern if you lived in Nagasaki or Hiroshima in 1945 because in a matter of seconds, 100,000 people died, ending the deadliest war in human history, a war that took over 70 million lives. But you don't live at that time and you don't live in that place. You live here, you live now in America, safe America. What do you see? See a red dot? See a smudge? And that kind of illustrates what most of us do. We don't see the 99% 
of the whiteboard, we see the dot. We see the smudge. We tend to focus on the wrong thing. It's an example of, of grumbling. It's an example of complaining. Now, if you're going to obey God, then we're going to have to do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now, how to stop complaining? Here, here's a thought. If you want to stop complaining, determine to be a good finder. Learn to be a good finder. Learn to compliment that which is worthy of a compliment. The Bible commands us to edify one another. That's with our words. You see 99% of the white on the board gets unnoticed. If you would look on page 3 of your notes, both the hummingbird and the vulture fly over our nation's deserts. All vultures see is rotting meat because that is what they look for. But hummingbirds ignore the smelly flesh of dead animals. Instead, they look for the colorful blossoms of desert plants. The vultures, look at this, they live on what was. They live on the past. Would you repeat that? They live on the past. They fill themselves with that which is dead and gone. But hummingbirds live on what is. They seek new life. Would you repeat that? They seek new life. They fill themselves with freshness and life. The hummingbird and the vulture always seem to find what they are looking for. And so will you. And so will you. So said evangelist Tom Farrell. So be a good finder. It's simply an application of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love beareth all things, believeth all things, endureth all things. Uh, love, uh, love is a good finder. Is that, is that who you are? Uh, if you want to have overflowing joy, if you want to have joy that that is seen by God and others, then you gotta, you gotta stop focusing on the smudge. You gotta focus on the good. Can you do that? As a parent, you can't say, uh, why don't you act like your sister? Why don't you act like your brother? Smudge. Uh, you can't say to the coworker, if you would just stop that, we'd all get along around here. Smudge. You can't say to your spouse, you never, you always smudge. You can't say to your friend, well, you know, I just always speak my mind and you, I just tell it like it is. Smudge. You can't say to your fellow worshiper, ah, sermon's too long, sermon's too short. I never did like that choir song. That soloist slid into that third, 16th note like a runner going into third base. Right? <laughs> Smudge! What are you looking at? What are you focusing on? Can you be a good finder because God tells you to? Have you met people who think they have the spiritual gift of criticism? <laughs> Become a pastor and you'll meet them. I mean, you're just draw <laughs> to you. You know that... That criticism is not a spiritual gift. It's a character flaw from a prideful heart. We're to live a life without complaint. We're to be rejoicing always. Chapter 4, verse 4. In fact, he's going to name two ladies who he tells they got to start getting along. Ultimately, our complaining is about God. How to choose joy. Let's move on. Shine your light. Do right. 
shine your light, do right. Verse 15, look what he says. That ye, ye Christians in Philippi and at Valley Forge, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Uh, Bob Jones was born in 1883. Now, that's not the Bob Jones that comes to our church, right? That's a different Bob Jones. He was born in 1883 and began preaching at the age of 12. By the time he was 40, he preached to 15 million people face to face. God used him greatly. He began a university. His most famous sermon was, Do Right. He preached, Do Right Till till the stars fall. Here Paul says the same thing. He says, do right. As Christians, we're, we're growing to become blameless. Now, we're not that way, but God is changing us to become blameless. That means purity of life. That cannot be criticized. Harmless, uh, that means innocent and uncontaminated. Without rebuke, that means without fault. It describes a sacrificial lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, it's three ways to say the same thing. God is my father, and I am his child. Uh, many parents and many kids have a family resemblance, don't they? I mean, you look at this and say, yeah, they belong together. Uh, we are to say, I'm born of God. God's DNA is now a part of me. It's in my soul. And the older I get, the more I look and act like my heavenly father. I'm growing up. Be ye holy, for I am holy, God says, 1 Peter 1.15. God the Father doesn't complain, neither should we. Be who you are in Christ. Let others see on the outside what you really are in the inside. It's good. Notice what also he says. He calls us lights. He says, we are lights. Ye shine as lights in the world. Christian, we are to shine like the sun, moon, and stars. Christian, we are to shine like stars surrounded by a, a sky of darkness. We teach our children that little song. How's it go? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see what? Your good works. So, so now we know what light is. Light is good works. It's doing the right thing. Many unbelievers, uh, when they come to this place, may they sense the love that we have for Christ, the love that we have for each other. But it won't always be easy. Why? Look what verse 15 says. Because we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Right now, right now, today, more so than ever in the history of our country, people call evil good. People call good evil. I'm going to give you an illustration of this. Crooked is the word for scoliosis. It is the curvature of the spine. It's this, it describes something that's messed up, something that's not right. Something that's broken. But look what he says. Look what he says in verse 15. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. I know, I know you don't like hearing this word, but it's in the Bible. This is what God wrote. Perverse nation. It intensifies the meaning. It refers to someone who has strayed far off the path. I mean, they're, they're lost in the wilderness. Their departure from the normal, it's twisted. It's distorted. Jesus used the word himself in Luke 9:41. He said, "Oh, faithless and perverse." 
generation. It's twisted. It's out of sorts. It's not normal. Do we live in a perverse nation? Right now, the most obvious example are the transgenders going after the children of America using library reading events. You do the internet search, transgenders reading in library, this is what you see. That's what you see. Don't hate this man. Don't hate this man. Feel sorry for him. Pray for him. This man is deceived. This man is a deceiver. He actually thinks he's doing a good thing. Look at the little kids in front of him. He thinks he's doing a good thing. He is sincere, but the Bible says he is sincerely wrong. He is sincerely wrong. And this is happening all across America. Brainwashing of our children. Do you know what happened in Lansdale this year? I'm not talking about California and Washington, D.C. I'm talking about right here this year, Lansdale. What about the parents who would take their children? You'd think that would scare them. Parents who would take their children to listen to this man read twisted books. They're blind to God. They're blind to common decency. They are, as Paul said, crooked. They are, as Jesus said, perverse. And the only thing that will help them is Jesus Christ. Now, what I have just said to you, understand, what I have just said to you is not hate speech. It is not hate speech. What I have just said to you is the truth. I am not transphobic, all right? I'm not transphobic. We've had transgenders attend our church. They are welcome here. They are welcome here. But the only thing that can help them is Jesus Christ. Amen. The only thing that can forgive their sin and my sin and your sin is Jesus Christ. And so we need to pray for this man and other people that are just like him. In the military, they want to use our tax dollars to pay for their elective surgeries. And I say based on the word of God, that's wrong. You join the military to defend our country. We find that in the Bible. It's in Romans chapter 13. They're to punish the wicked and protect the innocent. Defending the country is the priority of a government's military, not personal elective surgery. Does that make sense? Who joins the army and demands plastic surgery on their face? Ah, oh, I join the army. I want a nose job. Oh, I want liposuction. Oh, I want a tummy tuck. Oh, I want a trans surgery. They need Jesus Christ. Look with me on page four. Put your faith in Christ. There's only one thing that can help these people. There's only one thing that can help everyone. Coming to Jesus Christ. And so we are called to share the gospel with them. We are all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all on the broad road that leads to hell. Jesus died for all of us, not just the elect. He died for all and rose again. And anyone can believe on Christ and receive him as their Lord and Savior. Yes, ours is a crooked generation. Ours is a perverse nation. We dwell in a wicked land where godless men like a Howard Stern can make profit on being perverse. In contrast, Paul says, there's the darkness, but we are light. We're the children of God. 
shining God's light. That's how we live. Holding forth the word of life, that's what we say. Look with me in your notes. If you want God to use you to be a witness for him, you need both. We need, we need to live right, but we need to speak right. We impact people by who we are and by what we say. May I say that every day you are influencing others. Every day, right now, today, you influence others by how you live and by what you say. You're doing it for good or bad, God or Satan. Look with me at the box. You can curse the darkness or light candles. Would you say that? You can curse the darkness, or light candles. What Dr. Shetler say a few weeks ago? He said you can watch Fox News and just complain, or you can do something. You can do something. You know one of the smallest things that you can do if you're a member of Valley Forge Baptist or an attender? Not, well, we're getting to that one, but not park in the visitor lot. <laughs> I was just giving that note. Then you get to the first service. So you just, you got it. Uh, not park in the visitor lot because we want people who may be visiting who don't know the Lord. We want to get them in here. Do the smallest thing. Don't just curse the darkness, but light candles. A philosopher Hein in Germany said, show me your redeemed lives and I might be inclined to believe in your redeemer. Number five, how, how to choose joy. Share your faith with others. Uh, what is the word that gives life? Holding forth the word of life. Well, that would be the gospel. Jesus saves. Paul says, stop complaining and share the gospel. Why? Because in the day of Christ, when I get to heaven, I will have greater rejoicing. Paul says, do it for God, do it for Christ. And he says, do it for me, do it for your pastor. Four years ago, Herb Holzendorf and his son and daughter Daughter-in-law, they were at a nice restaurant around Christmas in San Antonio, Texas. And they began talking to a couple nearby, and they met Antonio and Sonia. And Herb shared his testimony. He shared Christ. And uh, the man actually bought his meal. Herb said, if, hey, if you're ever near us, stop in and see me. And they exchanged cards. Hasn't heard from him for four years. Two weeks ago on a Wednesday night, Herb gets a call. Thinks it's a telemarketer. Herb, it's Antonio. Who? It's Antonio, remember, remember? In San Antonio. Oh, yes, yes, Antonio, how you doing? He says, not so good. I have cancer. I have cancer in my kidney. Would you please pray for me? And Herb says, absolutely. But Herb didn't stop there. He has a small group of uh, praying friends around him, and they prayed for Antonio. And that, uh, they didn't stop there. He, he, he got his address, and they all sent him get well cards. And he didn't stop there. On Wednesday, he told me, and Herb and I went to my office, and we prayed for Antonio. And I, I wrote him a letter, and I, I sent him a couple of booklets, one about trials, and another one called Done, How to Become a Christian. And now I'm telling you that we'd pray for Antonio and Sonia for their salvation. And this week he had his cancerous kidney removed. Herb said to me, I would have never done that if I didn't come here six years ago. God has changed my life by coming to this church. I know there must be other churches out there like ours, but I haven't found one. I said, glory to God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of his word. 
Herb not only witnessed with joy, but he left a way for the stranger to contact him. Four years went by. How many times do we get a business card and we just throw it away? This guy kept it for four years. And when he had a need, he reached out to someone who he knew had the joy of the Lord and assurance of heaven in his heart. He said, I got to call him. And he did. Amen. Paul says you can choose joy. How? Obey God's word. Walk close to God. Stop complaining. Shine your light. Share your faith with others. What happens when you do this? Look with me at verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Uh, Paul speaks about a being poured out as a drink offering. Uh, they would have ancient sacrifices, and on the hot altar, they'd pour the drink on it, and then it would vaporize, and that steam would go up, symbolizing going up to the deity. And Paul says, this is, this is a picture of me. If this is the end of my life, I may never get out of prison. I might die. It may be God's will for my life to be poured out. But if this is the end of my life, I want you to know I'm happy. I'm rejoicing that I spent my days serving you, sharing the gospel. And while thinking this, that this could be his final the single most serious thought a person could have, he's still able to rejoice. He refused to let the possibility of his death steal his joy. In fact, he urged his friends to rejoice with him. Look at verse 18. For the same cause also do ye joy. I might die, but I want you to joy. I want you to rejoice with me. I mean, here is a seasoned and scarred missionary, yet all the while he has this keen sense of humor, and he's not going to lose it. Have you ever met some great saints like that? No matter how difficult life gets, they just keep their sense of humor. Paul, Paul was not super serious all the time. Paul wanted to make his Philippians friends smile. He wanted them to have joy in their heart. Can you find at least one thing to laugh about every day. Okay, then look in the mirror. <laughs> Might help you out. Can you laugh at least one time a day? Experts tell us that laughter helps control pain in at least three ways in your notes. By distracting our attention, by reducing the tension we are living with, and by increasing the production of endorphins. The body's natural painkillers. Laughter, strange as it may seem, turns our minds from the seriousness and the pain and creates a degree of anesthesia. That's how God made us. God made us to laugh. Laughter gives a brief excursion away from the pain. Choose joy. The Bible says that Jesus took his disciples and they went apart for a while. Do you think Jesus ever laughed with his disciples? I do. It's not recorded, but I'm sure he did. If you go to Sight and Sound, you'll see him laugh there. He laughed. It's okay to take a day off. It's okay to enjoy life. It's okay to get a bowl of popcorn, a bowl of ice cream. It's okay. Take a vacation. Enjoy this gift of life that God has given to you. In your notes, yesterday is history, tomorrow's a mystery, today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. 
God's gift to you is today. His greatest gift is the gift of salvation. Christian, let's serve Jesus Christ. And like Paul, let's enjoy the journey with great joy. With great joy. Choose joy. May we pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this apostle who shows us in the midst of deep trials, in the midst of a grave situation, that he chooses to rejoice in the Lord regardless of the dire circumstances. May we learn from him and may you do the spiritual surgery and adjust our attitude that we will obey, that we will stop complaining, that we will seek to walk with you, that we will do good works and shine your light, and that, yes, we'll share the gospel with others. Heads about, eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor, if I died today, I know I would go to heaven because there was a time in my life that I made a commitment to become a true Christian, a follower of Christ. What that means is that means that you believe that that Jesus died for you and rose again and you're trusting in only him to forgive your sins. You may not remember the date, but you remember the time. You called upon the Lord. You asked for God's forgiveness. You became a Christian. You've got a Bible reason that you know you're going to heaven. You have assurance. If you have that, then you're not ashamed to be called a Christian. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Would you simply raise your hand as a, as a testimony that Christ is in my heart, in my life. I have the joy of the Lord. God bless you all over. You may put your hands down. You'd say, Pastor, I, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure. I have doubts. God brought you here today to hear the good news, the gospel, that God loves you. Jesus died for you. He rose again. And if you will have a humble heart and the faith of a child, you can believe that Christ died for you and rose again. You can make that commitment to become a child of God today. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. If you sense the Spirit of God convicting of sin, if you sense a tap in your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. Say yes. Say yes to God. <clears throat> and would you pray with me now? Right where you're seated. From your heart, God will hear the prayer of your heart. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please, please come into my heart. Become my Lord and Savior today. Now, if you've just done that, welcome to the family of God. I want to pray for you. It's not about joining the church or getting baptized. It's about a, a personal relationship with the God who made you and the God who loves you. I want to pray for you today. Would you simply raise your hand? That's me, Pastor. I just pray with you from my heart, and I meant it to receive Christ as my Savior. Anyone at all, just hold your hand up for a moment. Hold it up for a moment. I receive the Lord as my Savior. God bless you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Father, thank you. Thank you for the power of your word. Now I pray for those Christians who may have lost the joy of their salvation. God, I pray that you would restore it to them. 
and their focus will be upon Christ and that they might be used by you to share your love, your care, and your salvation with others. May you bless in this invitation Him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we stand together, we're going to sing a song of invitation today. In my life, be glorified. And maybe you want to pray in your seat. Maybe you want to pray at the altar. If you want to speak to a pastor, a pastor's wife, it is a, it's a public invitation. You can step right out. You come as we sing together. In my life, be glorified. Your Bibles to First uh, Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19, I had a couple of you that were concerned about how long I would preach tonight. I uh, am not a pastor yet, so there shouldn't be any concerns for you. <laughs> First Kings 19. And I hope that this will be an encouragement to you, especially because of what you just heard uh, from our teenagers. Would you stand as we read First Kings 19 and starting in verse number 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. That's the events that happened on Mount Carmel. And with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. Verse number four, but he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Would you be seated? Let me ask you tonight, as we begin, do you recall the Olympics from 2008. I, I, I personally love uh, paying attention to the Olympics. I, I, I get to see a bunch of sports that I would otherwise never watch or never pay attention to. And I get to learn a lot of things about different countries and, and about our own uh, athletes and programs. And uh, when I think of the 2008 Olympics, a couple things come to mind. The first one is David Phelps. Do you remember how many gold medals David Phelps won swimming that year? Does anybody recall? It was eight swimming gold medals. Pretty amazing. And uh, some of them were very dramatic. If, if you recall, there was one that he won by 0 .01. That's one one-hundredth of a second. And uh, it, it, was a, it was an amazing feat to watch as he went through that process. The other one that I think of is Usain Bolt. If you recall, he broke, actually shattered two world records, and he made it look awfully easy. <laughs> There's another memory I have from the 2008 Olympics, but I remember it for a different reason. And, and it had to do with the, the relay race that was run. You see, the U.S. Olympic relay race teams for the uh, 4x100 had, had never not been in the finals. They had always made it to the finals, except for 2008. You see, in 2008, neither the men's or the women's teams ran in the finals for the 4x100 relay, and this is why. Both teams in the preliminaries dropped the baton. Both teams. 
And for the first time in the history of modern sports, the U.S. Uh, Olympic teams were not in the finals for this event. All that work, all that effort, all that expense, all that preparation, and a moment was lost because the baton was dropped. As I think about the relay race, as I think about the baton being passed, I immediately think of our youth ministry and our children's ministries. And I'm reminded that the reason that I get to be here and have this opportunity on staff is to come alongside you parents and families and church family to partner with you, to help you as you try to reach your children and the next generation with the gospel. And we're trying to pass the baton, if you will, from one generation to another. Now, if you look in 1 Kings, you've got a man of God used by God in many different ways, in miraculous ways, and here he is coming to the end of his ministry, and instead of being excited about the opportunity to see someone continue his work, Elijah has a much different perspective. You know the story. Elijah challenges the king, Ahab, and he tells him that it's not going to rain because Ahab is not following the God of his fathers. He's not obeying God's commandments. He's not leading the nation as he should. And so Ahab's wife, Jezebel, begins to try to get her husband to chase down Elijah. And what, what it leads to is a confrontation on Mount Carmel where Elijah gets to win this amazing victory for God, an, an amazing spectacle of fire coming down from heaven, and, and the people of Israel get to see in a spectacular display that God is still on the throne and still in control and that they should follow and love and serve him. And it's on the heels of that that we find ourselves in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And Elijah, instead of coming away from that victory, feeling victorious and feeling excited, he's discouraged. Maybe we could say he's even beyond discouraged as he asked God to literally take his life. And here we have an older generation that needs to pass a generation. And here in 1 Kings chapter 19, we see that Elijah had to recognize the need to pass on the baton. And he did realize that the problem was he didn't see anyone to pass the baton to. Jezebel's out, looking, out, out uh, trying to have him killed. He retreats to a cave. He's ready to quit the race, if you will. He honestly believed that there was no one left, no one willing to run with him, no one willing to run alongside him. And it's at this point where Elijah asks God to take his life. And as the story continues, you see that God comes to Elijah. If you fast forward to verse number 11, and he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance to the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God comes to him and has to remind him why Elijah was on earth. He was there to serve God. He was there to obey God. And in his mind, he saw that all coming to a close. And if you continue down to verse number 18, God has to remind Elijah that there were servants of God that were ready to take the baton. There were another generation that was ready to follow after him. In verse 18, it says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. And And in that moment, God comes back to Elijah and reminds him that there was no need for him to be so discouraged in this fact that there were literally thousands that were ready to take up the mantle. And it's almost like God is telling Elijah something he didn't realize. And when you read the passage, you think that until you go back, and we won't go there for the sake of time, but if you go two chapters earlier, when Elijah first goes and presents himself to Ahab, it's just a few verses later that the king's servant Obadiah is chasing Elijah. And when Obadiah finds Elijah, he presents himself and tells Elijah that he is a servant of God. And not only is he a servant of God, but he's actually hiding hundreds of God's servants in caves around the country. And for Elijah not to be concerned because there were others that were still loving and serving the one true God. And just two chapters later, Elijah completely forgets the situation. Just two chapters later, he completely falls into despair. And God reminds him that he needs to step up and pass the baton to another generation. God tells Elijah to go anoint a new king and to anoint a new prophet. And so Elijah goes out, and he's got to look in the right place. You see, he finds Elisha just where God said he would be. Verse 19. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing his 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12. And Elijah passed by and cast his mantle upon him. Elisha was exactly where he was supposed to be. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. And Elijah found him where God said he would. And Elijah was ready to pass the baton onto Elisha. You've got the older Elijah learning these lessons, and now you have the younger Elisha taking the baton from him. In verse 20, his response is given, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, go back again, for what have I done to thee? And Elisha, he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah. Elisha did not seek it out, but he was willing, he was ready to receive the mantle from Elijah. He was uh, persevering even when Elijah wanted him to go away. If you continue on to 1 Kings chapter 2, just a few pages ahead, you find as Elisha is following Elijah and learning from him, knowing that Elijah's departure is imminent. Elijah tells Elisha to stay. Don't follow me. Don't go with me. He tells him to stop. First, Second Kings chapter 2, verse number 1. 
And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And as you read, they leave Bethel, go to the next city, and again Elijah says to Elisha, Stay here. Just, just, just hang out here. I'm going to go do what God has for me. And Elijah says, no, 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 no. God told me I'm supposed to follow you. And so he does. And it actually says that as he goes, they get to the next city, and the prophets come out, and they, they confront Elisha, and they say, Elisha, you know that God's about to take Elijah from you, right? And Elisha says, I'm ready to follow all that God has for me. Elisha emulated Elijah because they lived life together. In order to make a successful pass from one to another, we must live life together, running at the same pace, the same cadence, and with the same purpose. So when it is time to complete the pass, there will be no stumble, no hesitation, and no drop of the baton. Would you turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll, we'll look at verse number 2. What an example of a baton pass between Elijah and Elisha. And Paul gives a similar exhortation to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Do you see the example of the relay race that Paul is giving to Timothy? Uh, I, I'm not one to run track and field. Like I said, I, I typically only watch that when uh, the Olympics come around. But it's amazing to see how Paul gives this example. Paul has the baton. And Paul needs to give the baton to the next generation. He needs to give it to Timothy. And he tells Timothy, you need to listen and take all the things that you've heard and seen of me, and you need to take a hold of it. But not just for yourself. You need to take a hold of it and then pass it on to another generation. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. Leg number one is Paul. Leg number two is Timothy. But Timothy, don't stop there because leg number three is the same that you will commit thou to more faithful men and then they will take and continue to leg number four and they'll pass it on to others, even more who shall be able to teach others also. What, what an awesome picture of a relay race. What an awesome picture of fulfilling the great commission, of making disciples. Church family, I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that takes this seriously. And I get to be an example of someone that was able to grow up here and see how God would use me to continue uh, in, in this manner for him. And tonight, as we close, I just want to give you a couple lessons and keys that are important to a successful handoff. And I want to show you from the uh, United States Track and Field Relay Rulebook how we can take some of these ideas from track and field that actually parallel what, what Paul's trying to teach Timothy. And uh, let me give you rule number 25 out of the book. It says this, the baton shall be a smooth, hollow, circular tube made of wood, metal, or other rigid material in one piece. 
It actually gives the dimensions and the sizes. The first key for a successful, successful baton pass is that we have to make sure that we have the right baton. Now, in my context, I, I get to, to partner with our families, our parents, uh, as they pass the baton on to their children. And let's be honest, in society today, in our communities today, there are a lot of different batons that we can pass to another generation. There are a lot of different uh, important things that you're being told you need to pass on to your kids. And there's some good things. You know, things like education, uh, things like a, a solid career path. And, and, and we're being told, take the baton of and pass it to your children and make sure they hold it tightly because they're going to need it. And those things are good. But Paul is giving us the example of what is the best baton, and that is this. It's simply the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we might enter into a relationship with him. When it comes to investing in others, we can get focused on a lot of things that may be good. But just because they're good doesn't mean they should be the most important thing that we pass on. Sometimes we get so focused on the good things, we lose sight of the God things. The most important baton that you and I can pass on to anyone, not just our kids, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's a roadmap that carries us through the Christian life. It's the power that God gives us to live for him, the Holy Spirit indwelling us to follow after him. Our identity is found in the gospel. I hope that you see the importance and the need to pass on the baton of the gospel. There's another rule I would like to share with you, rule number two, and that is in a relay race, each takeover zone shall be 20 meters long. And, and the key that we see from this is that the space to pass the baton is limited. Paul said, redeeming the time. Now, please don't misunderstand. The, the, the point is not that you have a limited time to see your children come to know Christ, but the point is this. You have a limited time to impact your children. I have a limited time to impact, impact my children. I, I've heard so many parents say over the years, they grow up so fast. <laughs> and now I've got three, and they grow up so fast. <laughs> and the time is going to come where my daughter and my two sons are, are, are going to have spent a significant amount of time with my wife and I, but the time will come where they'll have to move on. They'll come the time where they'll move out of the house, hopefully. <laughs> Maybe they'll go to college, maybe they'll pursue a career, and, and they're going to have to take the baton from us, and they're going to have to live their life for Christ. But I only have a limited amount of time that I get to be a part of that. For my daughter, that will be till she's 40. <laughs> for my sons, it will probably be a little bit less. But listen, it's not just about parenting. God brings people into our lives every day. It might be a boss. It might be an employee. It might be a friend. It might be a work situation. And we don't know how long God's going to allow that situation to be in front of us. So we need to redeem the time because it's a limited amount of time that we have to pass on that baton. Let's continue with rule number 12. The baton shall be carried by hand throughout the race. If dropped, 
It shall be recovered by the athlete who dropped it. He or she may leave the assigned lane to retrieve the baton, provided no other runner is impeded or provided that by doing so, the distance to be covered is not lessened. Simply stated, a drop baton is not the end of the race. I, I think in, in my mind, even looking back to the 2008 Olympics, I think I just assumed that a drop baton meant that you were disqualified. Now, in the context of the Olympics, a drop baton meant you lost the race compared to the other teams. But in our lives, a drop baton is not the end of the race. And, and it was kind of fascinating to me to see how they explain this in the rules. The one who initially dropped the baton has the ability to pick it up at any time. The runner doesn't obstruct the race for other runners, and as long as he doesn't take a shortcut, he can pick the baton back up. Now, you might ask, what does this have to do with spiritual transitions? And I am so glad because it has a lot to do with it. You see, my generation hasn't done a very good job of grabbing the baton. And there are numerous studies and books that have been written about the millennial generation and, and the Gen Zers that are not as uh, connected to their faith or religion, depending on what the study says. And quite frankly, there, there are a lot of blame that's going around. You see, some people say it's the youth group's fault. All they do is play games and eat pizza. <laughs> it's the parents' fault. They're failing in their responsibility to be the spiritual leaders of their kids. Or, or maybe people say that it's the church's fault. They're irrelevant and hypocritical to the point that younger generation wants nothing to do with the gospel. And I got to be honest, I find the entire conversation somewhat frustrating because the reality is in every situation, there's always blame to go around. The key is not to decide who should get the blame for a drop baton. The key is that the baton simply gets picked up and the race continues. Let's not get drawn into standing around and staring at the baton on the ground and trying to figure out whose fault it is. Let's just stop, pick up the baton, and try again. Let's continue to work together to see another generation come to know and love and follow Christ. And thank you for doing that. I think the seven teenagers that were up here tonight show how God's using our church and how he's using our families to pass the baton from one generation to another. Church family, thank you for participating in that for 35 years. Let's continue for another 35. Let's keep the race going. Let's join together as a church and as families in our church to pass the baton from one generation to the next. But may I say re to remember that it's not just from one generation to the next, but anyone that takes the name of Christ, anyone that's living their life as a follower of Christ has a divine responsibility to take what's been given to us to pass on to whoever God brings in front of us. Let's pass that baton and let's give it and let's see how God will continue to use Valley Forge Baptist to reach our community and our world. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the example that you've given to us and Elijah and Elisha from one generation to another, passing the mantle, passing the baton. Thank you for Paul and for the example of, of his mentoring of Timothy, of passing the mission from himself 
to Timothy and, and the instruction to keep that race going from one generation to another. God, help us tonight to hold the baton tightly and to pass it off so that we'll see many more come to know you as Lord and Savior. May we stand together with our heads bowed as we continue in prayer asking God to speak to our hearts tonight and to speak to the hearts of our teenagers. I love our teenagers. I want you to love our teenagers. God loves our teens, our children, our toddlers, our babies. And church family, God has given us a moment, just a moment to impact them. And how dare we squander that moment? Folded arms, casting judgment, discouraging words, comparing to a generation that has gone, being the vultures and not the hummingbirds. May we ask God to forgive us of an attitude of pride and judgment. May we ask God to give us a heart of love, of care, of compassion. We know not what it's like to be brought up as a teenager in this generation. It's truly a different time, different temptations that has never been faced in the history of mankind. So may you join me in praying for our teens tonight, our children, our toddlers, our babies. May we pray for one another, may we pray for the leadership, may we pray for wisdom and power. May we pass the baton. Our Father, we come to you tonight desperately needing you to help us, to guide us, to fill us with your spirit, and to be Elijah after you spoke to him. And to reach out to the Elishas, to reach out to the Timothys, the Silas, the John Marks. God, help us to have your heart. Help us to have your love. And Father, I pray that these teenagers and our children, toddlers and babies, I pray that they will feel safe in this place. They will feel loved. They will feel encouraged. They will know that we're on their team. God, use us to, to go out of our way to say hello, to learn their names, to let them know that we're praying for them and that we care for them.
as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, as Miss Flossie plays. May you turn your eyes upon Jesus tonight. Maybe you want to pray right there in your seat. Maybe you'd pray for some uh, teenagers in your family, grandchildren in your family, but then also beyond, and to pray for our teens in our church. If you're here tonight and you're not sure that heaven is your home, slip out, come forward. A pastor, a pastor's wife will meet you right now, show you God's promises, how you can become a child of God. Let's take a moment now and pray individually for these teens. Father, thank you for the challenge you've given to us through testimony and song and your word. And now I pray that this week we will be determined to follow our Savior, to reach people, uh, to seek out children and teens for vacation Bible school, uh, to share the gospel of Christ, which is the main thing. God, help us not to choose the good over the best, the godly. In Jesus' name I pray.